0: Assalamu alaikum everyone. Today I have a great honor to introduce you all with someone who is very, very special and she's inspiring millions across the globe, and certainly I'm one of them. She is the Director of Research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, where she leads the organization's pioneering research and thought leadership programs on American Muslims. President Barack Obama appointed her to the President's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in 2009. She is our beloved sister, Dalia Mugahid. Assalamu
1: alaikum, sister. Assalamu alaikum, thank you so much, Maryam. So nice to be here with you.
0: And I'm so honored that you are here with me on my show. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. How are you? Good. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. How are you? Alhamdulillah, I'm fine. So I just wanted to ask you a few questions about a few topics and um, I w- we, I'm sure all of our audience would love to hear from you and get advice from you.
1: Thank you, sure.
0: Okay, so you maintain the balance in all aspects of life. You maintain true Muslim identity and you, you're still influencing others in such a positive way. And you're also bringing in lessons from the Holy Quran and you know, referencing the Holy Quran and relating it to our daily life. So I just wanted to ask you um, to tell us a few of important incidents from your life, so that we can
1: learn from it. Well, thank you very much for um, this opportunity and for having me. And such a beautiful question. I I um, I often reference the Quran in in my life because I truly believe the Quran is a treasure that we are every day. We have to. Um, retrieve and, and understand and apply. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'll just give you one, one simple example, you know, to, to illustrate this. I remember I was in um, a situation where I was in grad school, I, so I didn't have a lot of money, and um, I was in a parking lot leaving my university <clears throat> And I accidentally hit a car in the parking lot, and it happened to be, like, probably the most expensive car in the whole lot. It was a very nice, brand-new Mercedes, which <laughs> now, you know, I hit. And um, and I was sort of in that moment like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Um, I didn't have any money, and I wasn't going to be able to pay for the damages, and I was... Thinking, hmm, maybe I should just leave because no one saw me. But of course, I knew I couldn't do that. So, um, you know, I put a note on the car, and I, uh, uh, you know, gave the person my phone number and everything, and and uh, and I went home. And I remember feeling really overwhelmed because I now had to figure out how to pay for this for the damages of this car, um, and. I had all these other things that were going on with classes and work, and, and I, felt, I felt very overwhelmed. And I remember opening the Qur'an in that exact situation of just feeling like I didn't know how I was going to do everything. And um, to the, the section um, in the Qur'an where Nuh, a.s. was feeling overwhelmed. And he, does, he says this beautiful du'a where he says, mahzumun fan Now, I am defeated, so be victorious. Or he was sort of handing over the trials and tribulations of his life to Allah. And that ayah gave me such enormous relief. Um, and I was, you know, eventually the person whose car I hit called. And uh, it ended up that I didn't have to pay because of insurance or whatever covered it. So Allah took care of everything anyway, but it was, but even before he took care of it, I felt the relief from the Qur'an. This is, SubhanAllah, this is so beautiful. Um, I mean,
0: I'm sure all of us can learn a lot from this story. It really does inspire a lot of people. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So um, being the advisor to the President of the United States, Barack Obama, is really a very honorable thing. So um, I just wanted to ask you, how could we prepare ourselves to get such an honor? And I'm sure that the, yeah, especially the next generation is looking forward to hear from you.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, it is certainly an honor um, to have been appointed to the President's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And I think, you know, the way that we prepare ourselves for an honor like that um, without maybe sounding like I'm avoiding the question, but it's actually to not even want it, not to expect it, and um, to really work for the sake of a law. And it sounds very simple, but if you can actually do that, if you can really make that your goal, to please and serve Allah by doing your work with sincerity and with excellence, Um, to invest in excellence. You know, Allah loves excellence in anything we do. Then Allah will give you the opportunities that he has for you. And you don't even have to worry about it. It's very nice because you You only are, you're only having to focus on what you can actually control, which is your own effort and your own intentions. But what happens as a result of that effort is not even, it's not even um, something you're held accountable to. And Allah will will give you and unfold before you opportunities and and, um, events that you can't even imagine. Um, But the important thing is to not do anything for those platforms, or not to make the platforms your goal, but rather that Allah will give you those things as a means to serve him, to help you facilitate the way for you, to to do what you desire inside, which is to serve Allah. Thank you so
0: much. I actually had a question based on what you just said right now. Maybe I should just go on to that one. Okay. So... You said, uh, as we as Muslims can only be a vital organ of the society if we are healthy. And if we want to be an activist or in public service, then we should be reluctant to do such work. And we cannot run towards this unless we are called for it. And this is actually a very complex, complex concept, and you explained it really nicely with the reference of Surat al-Mutathir. So can you please um, give us some light on that?
1: Sure. Would you like to recite Surat al-Mutathir or the first...
0: Few eyes, sure. No remind everybody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> وربك فكبر وثيابك ففطر ورجز فاهجر ولا تتنم تَسْتَكْثِرُ ولربك فاصبر فاذا نقر في النار فذلك يومئذ
1: Um, Such a beautiful recitation. You know, I I think this surah is like a blueprint for going into public service. And it's so so important because it was the surah that called the Prophet to start to teach, to start to begin the dawah of of individuals. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to notice that... um, it starts with calling on him as al-mudaththir Yeah, ayyuha al you know someone who's covered up who's reluctant who isn't running for this position he's actually running away from it mm-hmm. and so that is the beginning of public service it has to be from a place of Reluctance and fear for from the responsibility, which is how the Prophet felt. it was so much, and he knew what it meant. He knew that it was such a big responsibility. And um, and so we have to approach the the, the the heavy responsibility of of being in that place of public service from from that place of reluctance and from that place of recognizing that it is um, a responsibility and not um, and not something that we do out of wanting the the platform or the prestige mm-hmm. and you know the the surah goes on to say you know and you know so the idea of our role is to is to convey the message is to warn and not to we're not responsible for the outcome of that. We're not. We're not responsible for whether or not people necessarily follow us or believe us or accept what we're saying. Our only responsibility is to simply convey the message clearly. And I think it's very important that we remember that because once we start to make the goal um, getting outcome, you know, make, making people convinced or making people admire us, we will inevitably start to change the message to appeal more to what people want, rather than letting Islam stand on its own. And it's only by making the goal that we be understood, not liked, that we can convey it accurately and um, and as it really is. So I think Surat al for so many reasons really helps people understand how to approach this difficult goal. What do you
0: think? So I think that um, spreading the message of Islam and conveying the message is really important, as you said. Mm-hmm. And it's not the fact that if they like follow us and listen to what we're saying, but it's just that if they understand it and then it's up to them completely if they want to follow it. And another thing is that in the later verses of Surat al-Muntathir, there is actually a very beautiful story that I would love to share with you. I'm not sure, have you heard of the story of Walid bin mughirah No, please, please share it. I would, I would
1: love to hear it. I would love to share it with you, all right.
0: So let me just bring out my notes. Okay, so... Um, let me just introduce you to Waleed bin Mughira. So he was basically the best poet in that time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he was basically like today's Shakespeare. So um, he was also the chieftain of Banu Makhzum and Abu Jahl was second in command. And also he is the father of Khalid bin Walid and the sword of Allah. So basically what happened is one day Prophet Muhammad was reciting the Quran and Walid ibn Wali Mughira happened to be around and he heard the Prophet um, reciting. So then um, after listening he thought about it and then he said something. He said, I have, never heard, I have just heard a speech from Muhammad right now and it's neither from the speech of people nor jinn. So the fact that he said something good about the Qur'an, the word actually spread really fast throughout Mecca. And then um, the people were really surprised because he kind of described the Qur'an in a good way, even though he was a pagan. So then people panicked, and then Abu Jahl came to him, and he said that if you don't say something bad about the Qur'an after what you said, then we will not accept you because now you've kind of like made a good image about it. Yeah. So then um, Abu Jahl said, uh, call him a madman or call him a kahin, Ka- uh, call him a fortune teller. So then um, uh, Walid ibn Mulida was like, but he's not a madman and he's not a kahin. We've n- we know the characteristics of a madman and a kahin and we know that Muhammad has none of that. So then Abu Jahl said, why don't you call him a magician? And Waleed ibn Mughira said, but he's not a magician. He doesn't have any of the props or anything that magicians use. So then Abu Jahl said, then you should call him a poet. And then Waleed ibn Mughira got a little angry. It <laughs> triggered him because he was the best poet of their time. He was like, I'm the best poet. No one can be better at me at poetry. So then Waleed said to leave him alone for a few days, and he would think about what to say and he was walking around his house pacing thinking of what to say so now i just want to recite those few verses and and give some reference so a'udhu <laughs> billahi minash shaitani rrajim bismillahir rahmanir rahim zarni wa man khalaqtu wahida wa ja'altu lahu ma'lan mamduda وبنينا شُهُودًا ومهدت له تمهيدا ثم يطمع ان ازيد كلا انه كان لاياتنا عنيدا سارهقه صعودا انه فكر وقدر فقتل كيف قدر ثم قتل كيف قدر ثم نظر ثم عبس وبصر ثم اجدر واستكبر فقال ان هذا الا سحر يؤثر ان هذا الا قول البشر ساؤليه سقر وما So I want to just explain the meaning of those verses. So before Walid ibn Mughira came out in public and said anything at all about the Qur'an, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa ta'ala all, already revealed in the Qur'an about what was happening. So Leave me alone with the one who I have created. lahu I gave him all of his money and all of his sons. So he's talking about Walid ibn Mughira. And I prepared everything for him. ثُمَّ يَطْمَعُوا أَنْ أَزِيدُ And then still he wanted more. كَلَّا إِنَّهُ كَانَ لِآيَاتِنَا anida. Verily, he was stubborn, a stubborn person when he heard our verses. And then later on in the surah, إِنَّهُ فَكَّرَ وَقَدَّرُ قَدَّرُ He began plotting and planning and thinking. Maybe he cursed how he had tried to plot and plan. ثُمَّ عَبَسَ وَبَصَرُ ثُمَّ أَدْبَرَ وَالْسَكْبَرُ He frowned and he was walking and pacing in his house. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the worst he could say is, فَقَالَ إِنْ هَذَا إِلَّا سِحْرٌ يُؤْثَرُ إِنْ هَذَا إِلَّا قَوْلُ الْبَشَرُ This is a special type of magic that is coming from a man. And then Allah SWT says, saqar. I will cause him to go into the burning fire. And the interesting thing is that nobody knew what Walid ibn Mughira was thinking. This was all in his mind. He hasn't come out and, you know, to the public and said anything. yet. And, and then Allah SWT kind of exposed him and tried to, like, told everyone what he was thinking. So mm-hmm. this is really interesting.
1: MashaAllah. That's, that's really good
0: so um i have seen some of your lectures at ris that you have given in the previous years and honestly your analysis about the muslims presence in north america um it, it it and whether they were malignant or benign it truly gave me goosebumps so um you you were you said i was not expecting for you to say that muslims are not benign and i was kind of thinking what would you say next and you beautifully concluded that muslims are neither benign nor malignant and instead they're a vital organ of this society so this is such an amazing parable and it truly tells the depth, depth of your knowledge and we really have to stop answering the wrong question and um, inshallah, I will be presenting at RIS in Toronto this year. I'm really excited, but I would love to hear a little bit more about your experience from RIS.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, RIS is a wonderful conference, and um, I'm always very inspired when I go listening to the speakers. It's a uh, really very well put together platform, and I really enjoy being there. Um, and I really like their focus on spirituality and, you know, deepening our connection with Allah and with the Qur'an. Mm-hmm.
0: So the vibe there is actually really great, I can tell, right? Absolutely. It yeah, must be really nice. Really enjoy it. Inshallah. So another thing, fame always creates delusion and it naturally creates some kind of arrogance in um, our hearts. Mm-hmm. And you outlined some key points like how we can stray away from fame and Create a repulsion um, about fame. So, can you please give us some tips, um, especially for those who are in the front of social media and you know, in public service?
1: Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear from you too about that. Because I mean, you're you're very famous as well, mashallah. Um I think that it's important uh, to not get attached to fame. That if you are gaining a platform or people are getting to know you that you remind yourself that this is a responsibility and uh, and Allah is giving you this, it's not from you, to serve him, as just like money or your health or any other blessing. Allah is making you a temporary custodian over that blessing as a test to see what you will do uh, with it to serve humanity and to serve him and not to ever give yourself credit for it, you know. um, In my case, I, when I sort of became more well-known after being appointed by President Obama to the advisory council, I became instantly a target of you know, Islamophobic haters and that experience of being harassed and having um, people even try to get me fired from my job, having media uh, hit pieces about me every single day, it was so traumatizing and so negative that it was like a very effective way to not get um, attached to fame because it was so unpleasant and I am grateful to Allah for that and I know that that was a protection for me. And so I think one of the really key ideas that I hope you know, your, your audience will take away from our conversation is this idea of hardships sometimes are protections. And we, we, we very seldom think of them that way, but that was really the case with this very difficult time of my life of being you know, targeted in this way, is that I was protected from being attached to things. And and so to think of in your life, you know, sometimes things are hard. You are going through something that's a struggle. But to think about what am I being protected from? And that can be a very powerful way to reframe your experience.
0: Thank you so much. That's the beautiful point that you brought up. And I would say that another thing that maybe we can do to, like, reduce our... Attachment to to fame is, um, you know, rethink our intention. So why we're doing this, and of course, everything that we do is for the sake of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. So I think this is both of these points are really important when you are in the forefront and um, in the social media and serving for the public. Absolutely. So we want to create an environment where people will fall in love with our true religion. And we want to know how Muslims can contribute in the American society and demonstrate our true religion, not just by talk, but truly by example. Can you please give us some advice on this?
1: Yeah, it's really by, as you said, living our faith. You know, I, I do research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding uh, on the American Muslim community. And one of the areas we really focus on is Muslim contributions. So we are able to, to quantify how Muslims are a vital organ. Um, they, they actually contribute so much to society. Um, you know, we did a study in Michigan, in just one state, where Muslims make up less than 3% of the population in Michigan, but they're 15% of the doctors. um, And they contribute more than $5 billion to the economy. Um, They contribute $100 million in charity every year, create 100,000 jobs every year, which is more than Chrysler. Chrysler creates less jobs than the Muslims of Michigan. So it's a really important piece of research because it can help young people like you understand who they really are and, and not ever feel like they have to apologize for who they are because not only are they benign, as you said, it's not that they're just harmless to society. No, they're much more than that. They're, they're vital. They're an important. Without them, without you and other Muslim young people growing up and, and contributing, America would be weaker and it would be less innovative and it would be uh, less healthy.
0: Thank you so much for this advice. So um, Islamophobia has, as you said, become a very vital issue, um, especially for those living in North America and Europe. So on top of that, media has, of course, fueled lots of negativity and tried to establish a wrong perception towards Muslims in general. So I received lots of messages from my fans and followers. in social media about this topic and they would kind of ask me how how can we like handle such a situation Mm. and alhamdulillah today they will be able to hear from you and you are at the forefront (laughs) of fighting such misconceptions so can you please give us some advice on this
1: Sure, And I, I encourage, you know, maybe you can post a video that we just came out with an ISPU that gives four pieces of advice on how to fight Islamophobia. So this is the very question that you're getting. We have a video, it's like a short little clip based on our research. That's great. Um, so what, what we can really do to fight um, Islamophobia is, a, is basically at least three things. Number one, we have to, as Muslims, not believe it ourselves. And this might sound like it's obvious, but it's not. A lot of us have um, in, like, internalized the ideas of Islamophobia and believe them about ourselves. So to educate ourselves um, about the nature of Islam and to educate ourselves about who Muslims really are. So for example, Muslim Americans are as likely as Christian Americans to say that they think Muslims are more prone to violence than other people, which is actually you know, empirically wrong. It's not true. Uh, when you look at who's committing acts of violence, Muslims are not, by any you know, um, stretch of the imagination, more likely than others. In fact, Muslims are the most likely to condemn violence of any group in America. So there's a misconception, even among Muslims, so they have to educate themselves. That's one thing. The second thing is we have to share our stories and to share information about Islam with other people around us. Um, and, and we do that by having um, trusting relationships and by living our faith, and, and by doing that, we can create a space, a, a psychological space to share our religion with people. In an authentic way, not in a way that's preachy or, um, you know, uh, condescending, but, but in a way where we're giving people a gift and and to really feel that generosity behind that intention uh, in in sharing Islam, and and then finally the third is is to serve, is to serve others. You know, I think there there is no more powerful way to win hearts than then through the, the example of the prophet and he was constantly in the service of others so I, I think educating ourselves, then reaching out and educating others by building relationships with them and then third is to serve Allah and, um, by serving his, his, his creation
0: These are really good, great points, thank you so much, I'm sure everyone watching is learning a lot from you, even myself I'm learning a lot as well and I also remember that you said about the video, and I would love to share it, inshallah, this will really help a lot of people.
1: Great.
0: So among other things, to my view, um, go interfaith dinners uh, or events are actually a great way to bridge the gaps between like, different religions and different people um, from different backgrounds. And there we would have an opportunity to kind of learn from each other, and we can be the a, a messenger of our true religion and then the Almighty will bring in the result and he will move the hardest of hearts and ensure that the truth prevails. So what is your thought on this topic?
1: Well, I think that having um, the opportunity to get to know other people and and, um, start good conversations is very powerful and very important. I also think that um, you know serving together, build you know, doing um, service projects together can also be in addition to interfaith dinners, but interfaith service projects can also be a very powerful way to build those relationships and to demonstrate um, what our values are. I know that you're involved uh, with a lot of that. Can you talk a little bit about your work in the interfaith
0: space? Yes, yeah, sure. So, um, I think like two years ago I went to an interfaith dinner during Ramadan and I met a lot of people from different religions and different backgrounds and it was really a nice experience. I got to talk about um, the power of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and I kind of got to like spread the message of Islam over there but I also got to listen to what other people had to say and I think it was really a nice experience and like in, other, and I also went to like other interfaith events and done other speeches as well and I really like the, the whole like environment of them and it's really nice. And, and also today I met um, a, really ni- a really educated and nice man. Um, he is a doctor. His name is Dr. Walker and he actually invited me to another interfaith dinner at, in, on this Sunday, the next coming Sunday. And um, I think I just really like the environment and I would love to go there as well. So, I want to be involved more with some of the influential works that you are doing for the Muslim Ummah. So, whether that is within the scope of your research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding or anything else as well. You are such an inspiration for students and young generations. So, can you please guide me?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I mean, I think one of the most powerful ways that um, folks can get involved is by becoming an ambassador for the facts because facts and good research and good information is the, the antidote to falsehood and to ignorance and to um, fear. And so we really encourage people to um, share information with their networks. We, we've created all these different, uh, very accessible uh, products that you can use, like a, sm- a short video or an infographic or you know, to share with your followers especially if we have information that they're directly asking about. Uh, we've done the research, we've done all of the work, and all that we ask everyone to do is to become truth-tellers, you know, to, to, for us to foster a tribe of truth-tellers that can speak and, and speak louder than those who are spreading false information about who we are and what we believe
0: this is great thank you so much for this advice so i have seen your speeches at the ted show and also the daily show and i always feel proud that we have someone um to represent us at such a high level and subhanallah it is really amazing the way that you present your speeches and lectures with such confidence and power and i think only people with extraordinary calibre can do that really so um one day if allah wills i would also love to be invited to the ted show can you please tell me how I can prepare for that?
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for those kind words. Um, I think, you know, to prepare for that is um, is a couple of things. First, you just have to do a lot of work to write your speech and to rehearse it and to get people's feedback on it and all of those things, um, which I think you'll do wonderful at. Thank you. Uh, the second thing, and I think even as important is just the way we think about or we our attitude and the way we think about giving that speech because it's a very intimidating audience and the audience um, you know is full of literally like very famous people um, who you're nervous speaking in front of and you feel oh you know how am I going to impress them what are they going to think about me and if we let ourselves worry about if we impress people or not, we actually won't be able to do very much because we'll be crippled with fear. And that's what was happening to me. When I was thinking about giving my speech. I was so nervous, so incredibly nervous to stand up in, for, in front of all these people and and just didn't think I, I even belong there. And so I, I had to change my attitude. I had to change my intentions and I did that by realizing that, you know, the dua of Musa, which I think, you know, most of us say before we speak. I mean, yeah. uh, some We're all used to saying it, inshallah. But he says, So he prays for Allah to expand his chest and to remove the, ty- the, the, the knot from his tongue and to allow his... his allow people to understand him so that he can be understood. And what was so revealing when I when I said this dua right before I was about to speak is that he didn't he didn't pray for eloquence, he didn't pray to be impressive, he didn't pray to for anyone to be admiring him. He just wanted them to understand him. He just wanted the ability to convey the message. And when we change that mindset from what, can, what do I want my audience to give me, admiration, um, acceptance, whatever, to what, asking the question, what do I want to give them? What do I want to provide them? So it becomes a place of, you, you, you go up there from a place of generosity rather than need, and it can completely transform you, and that is really the best way to prepare for giving a TED
0: Talk. Thank you so much. This is really going to help me in the future when I do give speeches. And I'll remember what you said and I'll say Rabbi Rahli Sadri every time before I go. Inshallah. So thank you so much for coming on my show. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you and I'm sure the audience have also benefited a lot from this. Thank you. It's great to be here. Allah <laughs> khairan wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
1: Assalamu